unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Bashanov. Last week on the show, I sat down with my Carnegie colleague, Ashley Tellis, to discuss his much-talked-about essay in Foreign Affairs titled America's Bad Bet on India. In that piece, Ashley argues that if U.S. policymakers are expecting India to come to America's aid in the event of a military conflict with China, they would be well-advised to keep their expectations in check. Ashley argues that such a military coalition is highly unlikely in the foreseeable future. A month after Ashley's piece was published, the scholar Arzan Tharapur penned a response in foreign affairs titled America's Best Bet in the Indo-Pacific. Arzan, who's a research scholar at Stanford, argues that coalition warfare is the wrong benchmark with which to assess U.S.-India security cooperation. Rather, there are a whole host of things the United States and India can do together to constrain China's ambitions that can be extremely beneficial to U.S. interests. To talk more about his essay and the state of U.S.-India relations, Arzan joins me on the show today from Taiwan. Arzan, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me, Milan. It's a, a huge pleasure and a huge honor to join your podcast. So I want to ask you about the kind of premise of your piece, right? Um, in it, and we'll link to this in the show notes so our, our listeners can have a full read, you start by agreeing with Ashley's argument that, look, in the event of a security crisis in which the U.S. and China come to blows, India will not necessarily intervene militarily alongside America. But then you go on to note, and I want to quote here, New Delhi will not rush to Washington's side in the event of a security crisis with Beijing unless its interests are directly threatened. India is not a sheriff of the international order or a treaty-bound defender of U.S. interests, end quote. So, so far, so good. Where would you place your point of departure from Ashley's thesis? Well, thanks thanks for asking that, because it, it, it lets me clarify. This is intended as a response to Ashley, but it's not a rebuttal to Ashley. It's not a, there's not really a point of departure. It's more, I see it more as a compliment to his piece, right? So it's suggesting yes and yes. India won't rush to America's side in a Taiwan contingency or some other non-India contingency. And we should therefore still think about other uh, uh, benchmarks, as you say, or other ways that this partnership can be useful for Washington. Right? So if we accept his premise that coalition warfare is not going to be is is not going to happen that india is not going to join a coalition what good is a partnership with india for washington especially in the context of strategic competition with china that both the us and india are engaged in uh, so not in the context of a war but in the context of of peacetime or competition and so the question I try to address is what kind of partnership could the US and India have that is realistic, realistically achievable, politically on both sides, that would also be meaningful, make a meaningful contribution to a free and open Indo-Pacific, which both sides say they want, and critically, that would be affordable, uh, given India's very severe resource constraints. So that's the that's the angle from which I'm approaching this, right? Saying, okay, let's forget about coalition warfare in a contingency. Let's now look at what the purpose of such a partnership could really be 
uh, in competition and indeed even to deter such a war. So, you know, one of the things you say up front in your piece is, look, we're going to have these occasional divergences between New Delhi and Washington. But that doesn't mean that the U.S. investment in the larger bilateral relationship is somehow misguided, right? And and I want to put you in a bit in the awkward position of, of asking you to come on Ashley's piece, uh, which is a piece you didn't write. You know, my reading of his piece really was not necessarily to say, look, the investments the U.S. may have made in India are misguided, but rather... Um, we should be very careful in Washington to manage expectations that U.S. policymakers might have. And I'd be curious if, you know, what you took away is kind of the core thesis or thrust of what his piece was was aiming at. Yeah, 100%. I, I completely agree. It seemed to me to be, uh, for for us, the foreign affairs readership, to be hearing one side of the conversation where Ashley seems to be trying to correct or adjust someone else's expectations, right? Some uh, group of people in the blob that, uh, that see the U.S.-India relationship through the prism of a Taiwan contingency and that are suggesting that Taiwan be essentially a litmus test of the partnership. And it seems to me uh, just uh, inferring that Ashley is countering that argument, that he's saying, in fact, that uh, we should adjust our expectations, that that is not a realistic expectation of the partnership. More broadly, though, I would suggest that part of the part of the point of my piece was to sort of, again, uh, 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 double tap that argument to say, okay, we, we shouldn't expect this, but what we should do is not give up on India, right, to address that very same audience that he is addressing to say that even if India doesn't rush to the US's side in a war, there are still important reasons for us to continue building this relationship in a focused and resilient way. And I just want to be clear to our listeners um, that you know, you're, you're very upfront in saying, look, India's competition with China doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be perfectly aligned with the United States, right? But But you also point out that, look, Many of Washington's partners, be it Australia, be it Japan, they also don't necessarily see eye to eye with the United States when it comes to China. And and I'm wondering if, um, if uh, you know, is this a fair comparison, right? I mean, when I first read this, I thought, well, okay, but are Japan and Australia kind of in a different category? They're sort of longtime treaty-bound allies, where India, of course, is famously, you know, uh, somewhat wary of, of, of alignment. How do you kind of see various positions of these three big partners in the Indo-Pacific. Yeah, and, 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 and I do make that comparison. I think in, in my piece, if, if memory serves, I'm talking more about France and Japan. Um, but nevertheless, the, the point still holds. Uh, that's exactly why I bring these up, precisely because they are treaty allies of the US, precisely because for a range of, of political and strategic reasons, we should expect them, those countries, to have a closer alignment with the US on issues like China, and even they don't align so well with the US on China. So how can we expect India, which is a relatively new partner of the US with a very different history and a very different geography, to have the same degree of alignment with the US that even treaty allies don't have. So if even treaty allies don't have that, 
I'm trying to, in fact, be extra fair to say that we certainly can't expect India to have that degree of alignment that some people seem to expect. I mean, wh what you said at the top about your piece is you're really focusing on the ways in which Washington can kind of harness uh, or deepen cooperation with Delhi in places where India is willing and able to, to help it. Uh, to constrain China's, you know, growing regional ambitions, right? And, and you talk about three specific ways, and, and maybe be uh, it makes sense to kind of go one by one. The the first kind of pillar of your argument is: look, the United States should be in a position to support India's efforts to extend its own military posture in the Indian Ocean region. You know, tell us a bit, Arzan, in, in concrete terms, how might Washington go about doing this? Yeah, so there's there's many different ways, but but first, before I go into that, it's important, I think, as as you alluded to, to be very explicit about the framing. Right here, the issue is not India assisting the United States; it's an issue of India looking after its own interests, its own security, and in so doing, undertaking actions that are congruent with U.S. interests and that uh, supplement the collective efforts against China. So with that said, uh, the first uh, key issue that I would raise is, is an issue of military posture. Uh, and just for the sake of opening the debate, opening the, the bidding, I say that uh, India and the United States could develop a better combined posture in the eastern Indian Ocean region, and not just India and the United States, but also Australia. Now, what this concretely means is, is having ships and aircraft and munitions positioned in the eastern Indian Ocean region uh, that can better safeguard Indian security interests there, as well as US and Australian security interests. So India has the advantage of having the Andaman and Nicobar Islands in the eastern Indian Ocean, and not far from there, Australia has the Cocos Keeling Island, where each country has uh, military infrastructure that could be upgraded, and where India and the US and Australia could share rotational deployments, that is to put their forces on the bases of other countries. So the US has started to do this uh, more deeply uh, and, and at a larger scale with Australia and including Japan on Australian bases. And my argument is that we should extend that to include India's bases in the Andaman and Nicobar Islands so that India and the US and Australia are constantly uh, moving forces among each of their bases in that region uh, to share data from each other's platforms, to deploy uh, sensors and shooters, which all of these countries have, to essentially ensure that that part of the world, the eastern, eastern Indian Ocean region, uh, uh, has a better developed ability to see and, if necessary, target adversary military assets. Uh, Arson, could I just ask you a question, just to zoom out for one second, about kind of ties between India and Australia, right? Because especially folks who are in Washington are going to be well familiar with 
the um, evolution of U.S.-India ties, right, where we went through this very awkward phase during the Cold War where at times we cooperated, but there was also an adversarial kind of relationship. And I'd just like you to kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, the things you're proposing now are putting India and Australia in such close partnership. But, but the two countries themselves have also traversed quite a long distance. Just tell us a little bit about kind of where India-Australia ties are today relative to, you know, what you've observed and witnessed, say, over the past couple of decades. So I think the Australia-India military relationship has mirrored the trajectory of the U.S.-India military relationship, but lagged by several years. Uh, so the Australia-India relationship also suffered uh, a, a trust deficit for several years, especially around the turn of the century and for the first decade or so of the century, with issues like uh, the Indian nuclear tests, with issues like the failure of the first incarnation of the Quad, with issues like Australia refusing to sell India uranium, uh, right down to much more sort of quotidian issues like Indian students being assaulted on the streets of Australia. Uh, which was a big media beat-up, but nevertheless uh, a thorn in the side of the bilateral relationship. In recent years, there's been a very rapid turnaround in that relationship, a very sudden uh, uh, increase in trust and a very sudden deepening of the military partnership. Uh, and so what we see in, in that relationship is suddenly uh, the two countries sharing uh, not only a greater tempo of military exercises, but actually even having those exact rotational deployments that I'm talking about, where Indian P-8 aircraft deployed to Australia on operations, not exercise, and Australia reciprocated with a P-8 to India. And that's the sort of relationship that was unthinkable even 10 years ago, I think, uh, and which is a piece of the puzzle that really sets up this three-way relationship most excitingly. There are clearly ways in which the United States can support India's efforts to develop a more robust posture in the Indian Ocean region. That can happen with partners like Australia. But you also go on to suggest that, look, the U.S. could support India's development of high-value niche military capabilities. And I want to ask you to help us understand what you mean by niche, right? What does this term kind of uh, uh, allude to? And, and what are some examples where the U.S. and India could productively work together in this kind of domain? So when I'm talking about uh, high-value niche military capabilities, it's in reference to, it's in contradistinction to a broad wholesale recapitalization of the Indian military, which is arguably needed and definitely overdue. But India faces the very difficult proposition, as any country would, of how do you replace multiple, say, squadrons of MiG-21s, right? You can't do that instantly or quickly. So in lieu of that, how do you then achieve significant increases in military capability without a sort of uh, without the the massive scale of resource investment that would otherwise be needed and my argument is that there are certain niche capabilities that give a disproportionate uh, effect uh, in increasing military capabilities so for example 
uh, in just the past couple of decades, the P8s that I mentioned already uh, are the type of capability where a small number of platforms can suddenly create a military capability that either did not exist before or that was negligible before. India's acquisitions of US transport aircraft is another good example. A relatively small number of platforms, but that has become so frequently used, so versatile, so high profile uh, in allowing India to execute certain operations around the world. When we talk about, for example, India's acquisitions of Sea Guardian drones, that's another example of a small number, uh, still expensive, but a small number of, um, of, of pieces of equipment that can have a disproportionate effect on capability. Looking to the future, there's a whole range, I think, of capability types uh, that could fill this role. Everything from better sensing uh, capabilities, that is a better ability to see uh, over the border or across the ocean, better battle management networks for what we would call a SIPCOP, a common intelligence picture and a common operating picture, uh, and, and long-range precision fires, right? So the types of weapons that we see being deployed in Ukraine with great effect, such as HIMARS uh, rockets on the battlefield. Those are the types of capabilities that don't require India to completely change out its air force or navy or army equipment. It just it's a, it's a supplement in niche areas that can have a huge effect uh, on the battlefield or as a deterrent. Hey, Grant the Marshall listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Marshall, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Arzana, you you brought up Ukraine, and I just want to ask you uh, about that point for a second because it 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 came to my mind in the context of your third recommendation, really, which is that the U.S. should work to enhance its diplomatic coordination with India. And as you know better than most, this is an area where there's been quite a lot of progress over the past couple of decades. But um, there is the question of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and India's somewhat ambivalent response. To what extent do you think that this particular pillar of cooperation has lagged behind, given the differing views on the Ukraine crisis? Yeah, look, I, I think the differing views on the Ukraine crisis are real, right? And and they are a uh, substantial difference in political interests between the two countries. And apparently they have caused real frustration in Washington. But I would argue that it's exactly this difference in political relationships and political interests that in a different context could prove to be a huge asset to the partnership because where India and the US agree on certain common interests, especially revolving around Chinese coercion and Chinese aggression, India's voice can actually help to take that common interest and that common message 
to corners of the world where the US does not reach. And so it's exactly that divergence between the US and India that can, that can prove to be an advantage if it is mobilised, if it is uh, prepared for and, and, and executed in advance of some act of aggression in the Indo-Pacific. So it's not it's not that 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 they uh, that they have a common position on everything. It's it's just that they need a common position on the things that matter most to them. And and I would add, we saw this. We actually saw this play out in March of last year, a month after the Russian invasion. The Quad leaders had a virtual summit, where at the height of hand-wringing in Washington over India's differing views on the invasion, at the height of that frustration, the four quad leaders got together and said, we stand together against territorial revisionism and in favour of territorial sovereignty and territorial integrity in the Indo-Pacific. So despite the fact that there are diverging interests on some issues, there are very unshakable common interests on some issues, such as uh, the threat of Chinese coercion in the Indo-Pacific. I just want to draw you out on this because I think it's a really important point that you made in your piece where you say, look, India could be useful to the United States in helping to galvanize in particular the countries of the global south, right? Which is something that it appears to be more keen to do in light of, you know, recent events, recent visits of Prime Minister Modi. You suggest that, look, when it comes down to it, India can serve as a bridge with developing nations to build consensus where the U.S. is is, is, is the kind of 800-pound gorilla, right? It, it, its demands, its requests may be seen as kind of polarizing or or, or interventionist. Now, that is premised on the belief that there is a degree of consensus between the U.S. and India. That consensus is fairly robust. How confident are you that this is indeed the case? Yeah, look, I, that's exactly right. It does depend on the premise that there is a consensus. But I think on the issues that we are talking about, there is a consensus. The issue, those issues being... Uh, the maintenance of the territorial status quo in the Indo-Pacific, the absence of aggression or coercion, especially from China, in the Indo-Pacific. On those issues, I think there is a consensus between Washington and Delhi. Uh, and, you know, that doesn't mean that they always, that the two countries always have the same preference ordering. It doesn't mean they always use the same tactics. But it does mean that they have this common interest. And it's sort of like... In my mind, I didn't, I didn't put this in the article, but in my mind I always think back to the idea of uh, sort of thick and thin universalism, right? What Michael Waltzer talked about in, in reference to sort of human rights, where, there, that, where you can have overlapping agreement on basic core principles or ideas, even if they are interpreted and applied somewhat differently around the world. And so that's why you get, for example, countries like uh, Singapore and Kenya agreeing with the United States that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is an intolerable breach of sovereignty, right? Even though they all have different views on what exactly should be done about the conflict, for example, they nevertheless can agree on certain core principles. Bringing it back to India and the U.S., I think India and the US 
can agree upon. In fact, if there's one thing the two countries can agree upon, it is the danger of uh, Chinese aggression and coercion in the region. And so that's all that's required. Then it's a matter of India, again, pursuing its own interests in uh, mobilising the global south uh, to, to, to create a global uh, message that such aggression would be unacceptable. I, I just want to kind of link this back to the earlier discussion on Ashley's piece and and kind of what you're doing with this essay. You know, if one reflects on all three of these recommendations, all of which seem eminently sensible, and in fact, there are signs that there is progress on, on, on many of these, you know, one question that arises, of course, is whether these initiatives alone will be enough to satisfy the kind of aspirations, demands, desires of the political class in Washington, right? Um, again, to go back to your argument, you say, look, India assisting the United States during a Taiwan or Taiwan-like crisis isn't necessarily the right benchmark. Um, but, uh, you know, a, a critic could say, well, coalition warfare is what the Beltway hawks are going to be laser focused on, because that is a sign of Indian commitment when the chips are down and when things really matter, right? So so do you think um, that there is a risk here for U.S.-India relations in terms of just, you know, how perhaps political elites or others on both sides are, are, are viewing this? Or, are, are people perhaps getting too far out in front of their skis? I think there absolutely is a risk to the relationship if people are laser-focused on a Taiwan contingency or some other contingency, right? And that's why Ashley's piece was so critical, was such an important corrective to adjust people's expectations to say, listen, we shouldn't be laser-focused on this. This is not a litmus test. This is not the prism through which we should see really big, complex relationships like the one with India. Uh, I don't think that the three recommendations that I make are a comprehensive set of recommendations. It's, it, it is, as I said before, just the opening ambit, the, 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 the beginning of the discussion as far as I'm concerned. And there may well be uh, other, other ideas that are more politically resonant and I'm thinking here of ideas that we hear surrounding the Modi state visit relating to the defence industrial base, right, because that involve, involves huge amounts of money, that involves jobs, that involves a broader swath of, uh, of each country uh, because it involves the diaspora, it involves the trade dimension to the relationship, so the defence industrial base, I think, is one of those areas that the two countries have figured out is going to be uh, uh, politically salient in ways that P8s operating out of Andaman and Nicobar won't be. Uh, so the three things that I mentioned, I, I completely accept that, that, that they may not be the sorts of things that um, move the political elites, uh, but they are the sorts of things I think again, coming back to what I started saying, are uh, achievable, meaningful and affordable, but it's just the beginning of the conversation. I think the most important thing is to set those parameters to say that we should be trying to focus on a partnership and a strategy to achieve a partnership uh, for competition uh, that, that, that is 
focused and resilient and affordable for the two countries. So, so just in the spirit of kind of now kind of pushing you a little bit to, to, to think ahead and sort of, you know, a little bit longer term, I, I want to ask you about two issues. Let me start with the quad. Uh, you had a piece for the Lowy Institute, we'll link to that, where you wrote that, look, it may be time for the Quad to take some lessons from AUKUS, which is this tripartite security arrangement between Australia, the UK, and the US. What are the kinds of lessons do you think the Quad should internalize from this AUKUS deal, which is very much still kind of, you know, in the sausage making uh, part of the process? So the purpose of that piece was to make the argument or to draw the distinction between what I would call signals and effects, right? Because very often, especially when you get a, a, a diplomatic arrangement together like the Quad, the temptation is to issue statements, to issue démarches in times of crisis as signals of displeasure or signals of growing opposition to certain adversarial moves, right? There was an observation that I and a co-collaborator of mine made when we ran a matrix game involving Australian government officials last year where we had uh, uh, these officials playing members of the Quad in a crisis scenario involving coercion from China and the temptation was to signal displeasure. And inadvertently, all that did was to signal an impotence to do anything to impede Chinese plans in that game, right? And so the takeaway for us was, one of the takeaways was that when you do hollow signaling, signaling without any material changes on the ground, it actually inadvertently sends completely the opposite message and that in order to deter the adversary, the most important thing is to change facts on the ground. That is something that AUKUS seeks to do very materially by putting a brand new type of capability under the water as well as a whole bunch of advanced technologies, advanced capabilities. But it's the argument was that if the Quad chooses to... Uh, take on a deterrence mission, which is not yet certain, which is still a political decision for the Quad members, but if they choose to do that, it should choose, it should seek to make material changes to the regional balance and that empty signalling is not enough. So you mentioned uh, just a second ago this question of emerging technologies, and maybe this is a good place for us to kind of conclude. I want to ask you about ISET, which is this newish U.S.-India initiative on critical and emerging technologies. There's a lot of hype around this initiative, as you know, um, uh, both about, um, you know, what are the ways in which the two governments can work together and the two private sectors can work together, but also about how it might transform the larger landscape of U.S.-India ties in the decades to come. As we're at kind of towards the, 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 the front end of this process, as you watch where this is headed, what are the kinds of developments you're looking out for in order to judge whether, in fact, ISET can live up to this kind of transform, transformational potential, I guess, that, that we've been hearing so much about? So it's it's a tough question because ISET, as you know, is not 
a discrete program that seeks to achieve a certain specific outcome, right? It's it's better thought of as a campaign, as a long-term campaign to break down the barriers between the two countries so that they can innovate together and deploy technologies together. So there's many directions this thing could go. And, and I think there was just very recently a Carnegie India paper that was recently released that shows just uh, what kinds of different directions it could go um, and I would I would commend that to the audience as well but so the question will be as this campaign goes on five years hence will we look back on this point as a pivotal moment as a critical juncture in the same way for example that we look back on 2005 to the civil nuclear deal as a critical juncture where the relationship really took off Right, and so we are talking now a week before the state visit, and the 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 smart money is on the GE engines tech transfer uh, being one of the key announceables of that state visit. And if it does, if it is, that would be a huge breakthrough that hopefully gives momentum to this process, right? Because I think one of the one of the conclusions that the two systems have reached is that you cannot sort of a priori break down these regulations, right? The barriers and regulations that are stopping co-development and co-innovation can only be demolished by actually doing that, by actually taking a use case, by taking a, a, a project and using that project as a forcing function to... Uh, to break the barriers and to enact the reforms that are necessary. So innovation is is no longer a sort of one-way street where it goes from the US to its partner. And and, And the GE engines will be one big test case of that side of it, but there'll also be test cases that I would be watching for Indian innovations and Indian technologies coming to and being adopted by the US system. Right? And that, I think, is going to be the real test of ISET uh, and, and honestly the, the heart of the type of reciprocal partnership of equals that we keep hearing about. My guest on the show this week is Arzan Tarapur. He's a research scholar at the Walter H. Shorenstein Asia-Pacific Research Center, or APARC, at Stanford University, where he is charged with restarting APARC's research effort on South Asia. He's also the author in Foreign Affairs of a new essay titled America's Best Bet in the Indo-Pacific. Arzan, uh, this is an area where there's been a flurry of commentary activity, a lot of excitement around this visit. Um, Thank you for this piece, which I think clarifies in concrete terms what the U.S.-India can do together. And thanks so much for taking the time to share it with us. It's, it's, been a, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much. Grant Tabasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.
This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.